On today's episode of A Story in a Chat, we'll be exploring a topic that, at least here in the United States, we've been hearing so much about since the 2016 presidential election, which is a topic of fake news. It's going to be a good one, so settle in and happy listening! Hello everyone and welcome to A Story and a Chat, the podcast where you will hear mine and other perspectives on topics that are important to all of us. I am your host, Aisha Iqbal, and I wholeheartedly believe that conversations can bring people together in the most beautiful ways, which is why I've created this space to do just that. I'll always start by sharing stories from my life and perspective, then we'll be joined by other folks from various backgrounds and experiences to have conversations through which they can share their unique perspectives as well. This beautiful sharing of stories and experiences is fundamental to our human existence and helps us continue to evolve in a meaningful way. So let's get started, shall we? Have you ever watched a movie or read a book? I mean, even a magazine article that has made you question your reality? Or maybe just even blown your mind so much that you started to look at the life and experiences around you differently. Well, for me it was a movie, and the movie's name is Wag the Dog. It's a political comedy, and it's essentially about a presidential administration that hired a Hollywood director to create a fake war because the president's approval ratings were down. I mean, when I watched this, I I was like, is this even real? Like, this sounds way too close to life right now. And I wasn't the only one to have made this connection or asked these questions at that time because around then, the media was asking these questions. Uh, the Clinton administration was going through their own kind of troubles at that time, and the Iraq war happened to start around there as well. So... It's one of those things that after watching that movie, I started to question everything that I grew up thinking, which was that anything I hear on the news or read in the newspaper or magazine, it has to be true because those are the sources of truth that we have as a society. And it's the place to go when we want to understand the world around us and what's going on. So when the movie came out and I watched it, I was completely dumbfounded. It definitely made me question my reality, at least in terms of what was being shown on TV and reported in the newspapers and stuff. And ever since then, I've been what I think is a healthy cynic of information that I get from any news source. Now, since the 2016 presidential election, we've heard a lot about fake news. And, you know, what's real or what's not in terms of the kind of information that's being put out there to sway the masses in one direction or the other. So I wanted to bring this topic up in the podcast. And in this episode, I'm talking with Sam Weston about the power of the news and the responsibilities that the newsmaker may have, as well as those of us who consume and share the news. Sam is a communication strategist with multiple decades of experience in helping executives and political leaders in the US, UK, New Zealand, and Australia develop their vision for the future and achieve their goals with creative and unexpected solutions. He is currently the head of communications at Essence Global, one of the top advertising agencies here in the Bay Area, and he is uniquely positioned to answer my questions around this topic. 
Because of his experience in both research and communications in both the public and private spaces, I definitely wanted to hear his perspectives on this fascinating topic. Is all news fake news? It's, <laughs> I, lo I love that question. I also, I love that I got the, the chance to think about that question ahead of time a little bit because it's a very existential question for someone who, <laughs> who works in public relations and communications. And obviously we're a couple of days out from an election. One of the protagonists is the leading uh, you know, proponent of fake news. But but for me, I mean, when I originally thought about this question, it made me want to reread a book that had a powerful influence on, on me back when I was at university, Chomsky's Manufacturing Consent. And I recommend it to, to everyone, regardless of how you feel about Noam Chomsky or, or his politics. At the time you know, and this is 20 years ago that I read the book and the book's even older than that, you know, it made a very important point about what news had become because news has, you know, it was privatized and corporatized, you know, a long time ago. And everything that you read and everything that you watch in the United States, you know, is designed to make money. You know, it's designed to help publicly held companies make their quarterly earnings, right? And so over time, that has produced a particular kind of news diet for Americans and, and a lot of countries model, you know, everything that they're in the entertainment and information space on what happens, you know, here in the States. And that news is essentially entertainment, right? I mean, you know, you could see it in the 90s, you know, with the sort of, you know, in the pre-internet era, with the sort of tabloidy, if it bleeds, it leads, OJ and, you know, Tanya Harding, you know, kind of like right. uh, of the news. And, and then with the sort of realization that you could really sort of capture people's attention with political uh, news, the sort of, you know, the entertainment bent to following politics, combined with the fact that, like, <clears throat> opinion is much <laughs> cheaper to produce and actually much more engaging for people from a, a news production standpoint. Uh, so much of what you know we expect to find as news is actually just sort of opinion. And in the political sphere, so much opinion is now kind of meta opinion, you know, like opinion delivered by people who are experts, you know, on the topic, but who understand, you know, like who, who work at five levels of abstraction above everybody else. And, you know, it's, I think the combination of those dynamics has really created a very warped news environment, which, you know, we all <clears throat> walk through every day. Of course, you have to sort of add to that, like the, everything that's happened since the introduction of the internet to the way we, we live and communicate. And whereas before we had, you know, what Chomsky would call manufactured consent, these mass-produced shared realities, right? Or I, I love Noah Yuval Harari calls them fictions, which is like a, a really, you know, a, a really powerful idea. You know, before we had like these corporations producing, entertaining, sh you know, shared realities and whether or not they were actually real, you know, like, you know, there's much more that happens in the world 
on a daily basis that is reflected back at you in the, in the news. Whether or not they were, they were real or represented the most important things that were happening on a daily or weekly basis, they were shared. You know, we, right. we had this, you know, and now we have these fragmented realities and we're really seeing the the impact of that. So, I mean, this is a long circuitous uh, walk through answering your question. It's not an easy question to answer, right? I mean, is there even a right answer to that? Well, I think, you know, because, because one, to sort of fundamentally get to the existential nature of that question, yes, all news is fake in a way that it has been constructed, it has been produced, it has been presented in order to, one, try to help people understand it. And by the way, most journalists, most editors, most news producers, you know, they're not crafting fake news just to sort of, you know, maximize the end result for, the, for their company's performance on Wall Street. Like they're trying to do real journalism. They're trying to tell real people's stories that, you know, there's nothing cynical about their intentions. In fact, most journalists and, and editors are like the best, most, you know, goodwill people that you could ever hope to meet. You know, but they are creating stories that everyone can come to, or at least as many people as possible can come to and understand. They are, you know, naturally constructed and, and you know, <laughs> your reality is complex. Right. And, and that leads us to the, the perspective on fake news we have now, which is that, um, you know, any news that you disagree with, any news that, that uh, jars with your perspective on what reality is or should be can easily be written off as fake right um right and you know because we have we live in these echo chambers and and we have become educated by the news that we consume um to sort of you know look for for news and opinion that reinforces our perspective on the world right so uh you know (laughs) <laughs> fake, fake news is any news that we disagree with. Um, That's and right. I, and I think that I would as, as quickly call Fox News, you know, fake news as Donald Trump would, you know, would describe CNN. I think sometimes I would even, I would even call CNN fake news or, so here's the thing, like curation, right? Curating stories or curating narrative versus plain untruths, just you're making up stuff. There was an interesting, to me, it was interesting, an experiment that I did a few years ago. This was, I forget the year, but there was that terrorist bombing in Paris. It was Muslim terrorists. And I compared different news outlets across the world and how they were reporting that news, like the intensity of the reporting, as well as the, the narrative that they were using for it. And I compared um, Al Jazeera with BBC World. And um, what was the other one? Um, Either CNN or NBC, or maybe even both here. So what I wanted to do was, was look at the US version of the reporting, a European version, since that's where it happened, and then kind of another publication. So that's where Al Jazeera. What was fascinating is that in the non-US publications, that story was not even above above the line. So it wasn't in like the first thing that you see when you land on the site. You had, if it was, it was probably a sentence with a a small image or you had to scroll down. But when you get, went to the US publications, 
it was like the hero image was all about the bombing. And then there were several other stories related to kind of Muslim terrorist attacks and, and, and things like that, which made me think, we know it's not fake news. We know it happened, or as you know, as much as we can know here sitting, it, it happened. But the way it was being reported, with the intensity of the way it was being reported here in the US was much different than everywhere else. And at the time I was having this discussion with a friend of mine about this, that there's potentially an agenda here that they're trying to meet and, and that they're trying to form. And so they're using the story to meet that agenda. So in that sense, to me, it's not necessarily fake news, but it is, how are you curating the news? Like what are the stories that you are amplifying and what, what is the purpose of that? So then that brings me to a question that came up when you were talking about the intention of newsmakers today is essentially to make money. So then we've always heard that old adage of journalism being they're the seekers of truths. Is that even true anymore? Like what is, what is the responsibility of a newsmaker today if there even is a responsibility? Well, I think most people get into journalism. So most people who are writing the stories are asking the questions. You know, journalism is not a highly paid, lucrative career uh, choice for most people. And to be honest, you know, it, it's harder and harder and harder to get you know, paid at all working in journalism, given the, the pressures on the publishing industry. So the people that go into it, for the most part, aren't necessarily, uh, they're not politically minded, they care about telling stories and about sort of, they care about the news, right? Um, and, you know, I think that most journalists have good intentions in terms of getting to the heart of a story and sharing it. Now, of course, that gets laid on with like what you need to do in order to be promoted and the competition for, for you know, for the few jobs that exist, right? That, that's going to shape the kind of stories that you chase after. Also, as you know, you'll find that journalists often specialize on a, on a beat, right? Like they, mm -hmm. have, they develop expertise in reporting about a particular type of news. And that leads to uh, developing sources, right? With, you know, particular specialist commentators and people that, that trust them to with the information and so that also that in itself like warps and shapes their perspective on the news that they're, they're reporting fundamentally i think that most journalists out there are, are trying to do a good job to reflect the reality you know objectively that, that they see and in america in particular there is a an ideology that that sort of serves as a framework for for enforcing this, which is the sort of the both sidesism, you know, perspective, which is that it's not actually your job to reflect reality; it's your job to report uh, on people's differing perspectives, you know, on what that reality is, almost in a very American political sense, like you know, just you know, take the debate, uh, present it for the reader, and let you know people decide for themselves, you know, assuming that the truth lies somewhere in the middle, and you know, obviously the end result of that is I think fundamentally a disservice to readers, to viewers, to, you know, the world that we've, we've lived in, the way that norms have, you know, changed over time. But that's a larger, 
problem than the intentions of individual reporters. I think that once you've got the chain in a news organization, there are real responsibilities that get to the heart of your question because you're deciding what goes on air. And that's the editor that's deciding what the piece looks like. And it's the owners and the decision makers and a network or the editor-in-chief at a newspaper that decides what's the news today, you know? The New York Times, all the news that's, you know, fit to, <laughs> to read, right? Like, you know, you're deciding what the world looked like that day. And that has incredible... That is such a powerful thing you said. You are deciding what the world looks like that day. Mm-hmm. It's like a decision versus a reflection. Like, I am just showing you what the world looks like as it is versus... I'm crafting for you a picture of what I believe the world looks like. Yeah. I mean, I think most, most good faith publications, you know, wrestle, you know, with that question in, in good faith. And they balance out like the need to grow revenue with the need to represent, you know, and reflect reality. It's a little bit different when you get into the Murdoch family and, and Fox News, where they have a particular agenda. And I think that's actually quite unique in terms of mass media news organizations. Even people like to hold up MSNBC as the sort of the opposite end of the spectrum. But Fox has become a a singular entity in in driving narrative because they have such a a partisan agenda. I think MSNBC has identified that there is an audience whose needs were not being met by the news, news and information market and are serving it well. But the people that are there, while many of them are in tune with the sort of attitudes and perspectives of that market, they're not driving a pro-democrat agenda for the most part, you know, whereas the opposite is certainly true, you know, at Fox. One of the, the big barriers, right, is that people don't understand how news gets made. And they don't understand what goes into putting something on air or, or why a story gets written. It's one of the many things that we should teach kids as they grow up and, and go through schools, right? Like right. <laughs> financial literacy, information literacies. One of the, the powerful elements that anybody in, working in PR or, or journalism sort of understand, you know, has of everybody else is that we know how news gets made and it's messy, but it's, it's knowable. Whereas... of people living in the world have no idea, you know, why somebody ends up in a news story or gets an award or is is a headline. And that's why it's interesting. I lived a lot lot of my life on Twitter, you know. (laughs) (laughs) You and Uh, many others. (laughs) And people who do know this, like, put a lot of time and energy into critiquing the news, right? Critiquing, you know how the New York Times covered a story. But most people, like, they equate being written about or covered with a legitimate need to cover that topic or you know, someone being deserving of the notoriety or the, the fame that, that the news is creating for them. The truth is that these things can be manufactured. Reporters never report on topics they don't know about, right? So all coverage is shaped either proactively or reactively by protagonists that are, that are involved in, in the stories they're you know to, for, for something else you need to read academic papers <laughs> you right. know which take a lot longer to to produce and tend to be much more boring <laughs> that's right it's almost as if 
I've thought about this quite a lot, the, what the purpose of the news is. And it's easy for, for me to think that it's simply just to share information, right? I am getting from the news information that I otherwise would not be able to because I am not in a location seeing what's happening. So I'm tapping into a source that can inform me of things that I in my everyday would not be uh, aware of. But then there's other sides, as you have stated, that the news is also there to, it's a, it's a tool to either gain credibility you know, from, like if I want to celebrate myself, I will go to someone, I'm like, hey, write about me. I have something interesting to say. But on the flip side, it's also used to defame personalities as well, right? If you wanna throw mud on someone. You, you leak a story about them. Then there's the other side of the news rallies people together for good or for bad, but it brings people together. So it's, it's such a powerful tool and it's, it's, it's scary because of how powerful it is. So then with that said, we, we talked about the responsibility or none of the people who make the news, but what about the responsibility of the people who consume the news? Like me, I'm a consumer of the news. I'm a sharer of news. What responsibilities do I have, again, if any? Well, I mean, there's the existential answer to that, which is like, what responsibility do you have to follow the law if you didn't know that the law exists, right? Most people are, are born into, the, into a world where the news is the ultimate validator of, of reality and and you just live in that world and you abide by the sort of unwritten <laughs> you know norms that, that follow in theory like everybody has the responsibility to educate themselves and to to act responsibly i think that you know the tools that are available to everybody these days have created new responsibilities for, for everybody, right? I mean, we can talk about the responsibilities that the platforms have and to varying degrees, those you know, platforms are, you know, engaging with those responsibilities now. Like, you know, you see Twitter, for example, cautioning people about reading the articles before they retweet them and Facebook and Instagram sharing links to reputable um, news sources alongside content that may or may not be reputable on key topics like the coronavirus or the election. But, you know, fundamentally, it's your responsibility as a, as a citizen, as a, as a relative, as a professional co-worker, as a, you know, parent, as a, you know, to think about the, you know, information that you're sharing, you know, knowing that we live in a world of, you know, fake news where whether you agree with it or not, you know, the information that you're sharing has, you know, is often weaponized, right, to make a point. And it'd be very different if, if we were only sharing, you know, well-reported, trustworthy, like the, you know, BBC articles or Wikipedia pages, which have been collaboratively produced or, or, you know, New York Times stories written by Pulitzer winning, you know, reporters. But because 
that's not what news looks like anymore. Of course, everybody has the responsibility to think about the impact that what they're saying and sharing, you know, is going to have on the people around them who are seeing it. The, the challenge is, of course, that and people are thinking about what they're sharing and that thinking goes about as far as this article represents what I believe and what, and, and by reading it, you know, you will also, you'll share my perspective. <laughs> and for most people, that is responsibility. You know, they feel that by advocating for their position and their, you know, their conspiracy theory or whatever, that they're helping to make the world a better place. You know, if we only shared more articles about how Donald Trump was a man of integrity who was, you know, had the cards stacked against him, then then America would be a, a better country or, or the opposite, right? We have all stumbled into a world which is very different as a result of the internet where, you know, we are participants in creating new realities around us and we have new tools and no one has taught us how to use them. We're figuring it out together. Earlier, you mentioned that we should start teaching our children some of these basics in information literacy. I am all about that. I have a four-year-old daughter and I know you have children as well. So how, how would you go about doing that? How do we teach information literacy to children? Because I think some of these lessons would be beneficial for adults too. <laughs> well, I mean, I raise that as sort of a, you know, an aside on how poorly high school curricula these days prepares people for the world that we live in. And I think back to all the things I wish I had learned at high school about saving money and, and invest, you know, like, mm -hmm. did you know that the reason that people get rich is because they put their money in the stock market? <laughs> That's right. something that you find out from your rich parents. It's not something that you learn at school. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and there are so many new skills and subjects that people need to learn. They, they should have a right to, to be informed of and that society, you know, would benefit enormously from if people just had a fundamental literacy. And my kids are lucky because they grow up, you know, in a household where dad's on the phone with the reporter trying to influence the way that the story comes out. So they know it's not news to them that that's how news gets written. It's still an ongoing conversation that we have to have about social media and the way that they engage with their phone and the devices around them. My wife and I recently watched The Social Dilemma on, on Netflix and you can pick apart different you know, arguments or themes in that uh, documentary. I'm not saying that I agree with 100% of it, but we immediately sat down and watched it again with the kids because we wanted them to be conscious of, you know, what really goes into the stuff that they, I mean, they just look at a phone. They don't think about how it works or, you know, or why there are ads. And of course, there are lots of other reasons that parents engage with their kids about social media, you know, in terms of you know, a lot of it is about like mental health, you know, but I, I do think that as we educate ourselves, you know, we should be talking to our kids because it's important to share, you know, what you've learned about the world that we live in now with the kids who are going to inherit it. It's all about conversations. 
<laughs> having open, transparent <laughs> conversations. Sounds intuitive, sounds easy enough to do, but it's really not. Uh, and I think practicing this with children, at least when I when I practicing this with my daughter and I call it practice because I'm not used to answering questions like, mom, why did the bird fly in that direction? You know, answering yeah. that versus saying, I don't know, you know, because it's just the way I see it is by practicing answering questions like that, I am then opening my mind to potentially other seemingly dumb <laughs> questions that I might get from an adult. <laughs> so there's nothing like having kids to sort of, you know, make you realize that you're a grip on understanding how the work, the world really works. I, 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 that sort of old adage about like, if you can't explain it to a five-year-old then you don't really understand it is, is true. And <laughs> it has never been truer. It has never been truer. And it's such, and, and there's, and it's a very humbling experience. Sam, thank you so much. This was such an enlightening conversation. I want to thank you very much for thank joining you. me here. This is really fun. Thanks very much. I hope you enjoyed this episode of A Story and a Chat with me, your host, Aisha Iqbal. Before signing off, I want to take a moment to reflect on this conversation and bring it back to my everyday. Sam mentioned that it's important to teach our children information literacy, which essentially means that you know how knowledge is organized, you know how to find the information you need, and lastly, you then know how to use the information you found. This basically values learning as much as knowing. So how do kids learn? Well, simply by asking why. As a parent, there is no end how many why questions I get during any given day. And let me tell you, it gets annoying really fast. But how I respond or don't is really crucial to how my daughter will learn as she grows into adulthood. How will I contribute to my daughter's information literacy then? Well, first I will start by not shooing her away the next time she asks me why and actually hear her out. Then, I will make a concerted effort to answer her question. And if I don't know the answer, then I'll just say it. I'll be like, baby, I don't know. But I won't stop there. If I don't know the answer, then I'll take her through my thinking process. Or better yet, I'll ask her what she thinks the answer is. I want to give my daughter more of what I didn't get enough of when I was a younger Aisha, which is the gift of patience when I had my own why questions because that will help her adult version feel more confident in asking questions and not be scared into silence because she thinks her questions are stupid. Please tune in next time when I continue to explore this wonderful world of ours through the art of storytelling and discourse with other magnificent human beings. Until then, keep your mind clear and your heart open so you can hear your own truth. Also, if you enjoyed any part of this conversation, please consider writing a review saying as much and share this out as a gift to others in your circle. Doodles!